Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. I'm the manager here at the Scholar. Um, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the bookstore this evening as we welcome Wesley LaCrone and Michelle Atherton to Harrisburg as they discuss their new book, Pennsylvania Politics and Policy, a Commonwealth Reader. Also, a special thank you to PCN TV um, and all the viewers out there this evening. Wesley LeCrone is an associate professor of political science at Widener University. He teaches a broad range of courses related to American government, institutions, and public policy. Among these are the presidency, interest groups, and state and local politics. His research interests are primarily in the areas of federalism, intergovernmental lobbying, and state politics. Michelle Atherton is an associate director of the Institute for Public Affairs at Temple University. She also serves as the associate director for the Center on Regional Politics staff advisor for the Pennsylvania Policy Database Project and director of the Pennsylvania Capital Semester, Semester, an internship program in Harrisburg for students at Temple and all Pennsylvania colleges and universities. In Pennsylvania politics and policy, Atherton and LaCrone explore current issues of interest to Pennsylvanians, ranging from education, healthcare, public finance, and tax policy to environmental policy and alcohol policy. Each chapter is supplemented by forums with arguments in support of or opposed to contested elements of state policy, discussion questions, and suggestions for further reading. We're so thrilled to welcome Michelle and Wesley to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore, so please join me in giving them a warm Harrisburg welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Is, that, is it okay here? I don't not an experienced microphone person. Um, anyway, thank you for having us. We are going to get to discuss a little bit about what is in the book, but I first want to say a little bit about what, how the book developed, why we're here. Um, so it really came out of the Pennsylvania Political Science Association, which is the oldest state association for political scientists in the country. It was started in 1939. Wes and I are both members, and we have a lot of colleagues across the state. Just want to thank, in particular, Joe McLaughlin, who just so happens to be my boss and a terrific fellow. <laughs> um, my, my former boss. Yeah, my boss's <laughs> former boss. <laughs> um, and as Wes says, Joe, uh, Joe, Joe forgets more than either of us ever knew. <laughs> so, like whatever he remembers is much more than we will ever know. So he's a tremendous guy. And we'd also like to thank Paula Holoviak at Kutztown University, Tom Baldino at Wilkes and Chris Boric at Muhlenberg College. So the, the book really came from the, the journal that we have, it's called Commonwealth. And what we do is we select the best articles that we think would are, are touching on current issues Pennsylvanians are talking about right now. So the, if you don't know anything about uh, academic journal, really people, you solicit articles to it, and then it's peer reviewed, then it gets published, and we have about three, three a year. And so what we do is we select the best articles of the year and we put them in the reader, but we also have some value-added sections. We have uh, a chapter on research in Pennsylvania. We do discussion questions, information for further exploration, websites and, and books and such. So it's, it's the journal, but a little bit more than that. Um, that, that cover it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, w what we found is, uh, you know, it's very difficult to find information on, on Pennsylvania politics that you know you get good very good journalism although that's being cut back on in, in quite a, a few in instances uh, if you watch PCN regularly you can find out stuff that's going on 
But what we really found was that for the, the average citizen that wants to take a step above the journalistic works that you get, there really wasn't any good reader out there. So we tried to put that all together. And it's, it's really important, we kind of forget about state politics. You know, in most colleges you have American government, which is the, the political science 101. And I always make the case that political science 102 should be state politics, right? Because <laughs> it influences our daily life in, in many ways that the federal government doesn't. Um, you know, if you don't get to work after it snows, it's because your township didn't plow the roads. That's an immediate effect on your life. And you know, if education isn't working, it's because the state and local governments didn't fund it correctly or they didn't put in curriculum correctly. So we really wanted to make this a way for people that were not necessarily experts in Pennsylvania politics to understand what's going on. And not only is it important from the fact that you know, traditionally state and local governments have really focused on things that are important to us, but also Washington, I think you might have heard, isn't working right now, right? And we're in complete gridlock. So it's been kicked down to the states and the local governments to be able to undertake a lot of the things that the federal government isn't doing. So if you take a look at some of the chapters in this book, we see a lot of different things where states are innovative in the way that they kind of handle public policy problems. And that's what makes the federal system very interesting because we always have recourse to another level of government to ask them to do something if another level isn't working for us. So, you know, it's just a, a plug that, you know, it's not just policy wonks and nerds that love state politics. Everybody should love it because it's really a very important facet of what goes on in our life. So that's uh, just kind of a, uh, another reason why we think that, 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 that we should like the book. So we pulled out a couple of things. I'm going to talk real briefly about kind of political culture in Pennsylvania. Uh, Michelle's going to talk a little bit about um, the, the property tax in Pennsylvania. I'd uh, like to talk a little bit about demographic and demographic problems, and then we'll end up talking a bit about the Wolf administration uh, and a little bit about the election, and then have some questions. So, oh wait, let me add. Yeah. I, for, I forgot to add one more thing. Um, so, there's a special issue of the journal out right now on the opioid crisis in the state, and we did have the journal. Ha there was a paywall on it, but now there isn't. So, if you're interested. You can go online, you can access that journal for free. It was special guest edited by the former chancellor of the University of Pittsburgh, Mark Nordenberg. And uh, obviously it's an issue that impacts every community in the Commonwealth, so just wanted right. to let you know that it's out there. Right, it includes uh, an article by uh, Attorney General Shapiro too about what's going on with the Attorney General's office. It's really, really interesting, so that's available for free uh, to take a look at. So one of the things that we take a look at is the political culture of a state or a local government. And uh, Daniel Elazar, who's a professor at Temple University, came up with a theory of political cultures in the United States. And he boiled it down to about three different things. He called them indi individualistic, traditionalistic, and moralistic cultures. And what these are are ways, that kind of traditions and sociological aspects that guide politics. So, for example, the traditionalistic culture, which he primarily looked at southern states, was about preserving the status quo. And people who were not part of the elite weren't, uh, weren't encouraged to be part of the political system. They should stay out of politics. Uh, the system of government was set up for those who were elites, and basically nobody got anything but those people. In a moralistic political culture, what you had was everybody believed that politics was a way that we could achieve the good life together. 
and that we should work towards the common good and kind of reject our own personal needs in order to be able to have a better society. And people were encouraged to be involved in politics. Um, usually in those states, uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of um, high voter turnout, uh, usually initiative from referendums, uh, and people aren't kind of uh, as partisan as in other states. And then you get to the individualistic political culture. And Pennsylvania is kind of the poster child for this which places all of this in context. And in the individualistic political culture, what you have is politicians view the system as being a marketplace. So I enter the political system so that I can take out what's good for me and what's good for the people I represent, and we compete against each other to get what we can out of government. People are encouraged to vote, but after that, stay out of the way because it's rough and tumble, right? Uh, and there tends to be a lot of corruption. Now, it's not in this book, but we're, we're actually working on the next edition of this book, which is due on September 1st. So uh, we talk a little bit about political culture in that one. And there are a couple of things that come along specifically re related to Pennsylvania. Um, I, I read a, a great quote today because being a policy nerd, I went to the state library before we got here and was looking through some books that I can't get back in Philadelphia. And I read a book from 1904, and in it, it talk about the holy experiment of Pennsylvania under William Penn, and I'm just reading off of this. Um, he basically says his aim was to found a colony in which there would be absolute religious li liberty and perfect equality. The principles upon which his plan was carried out involved perfect democracy, perfect religious liberty, perfect justice and fairness in dealing with aborigines and neighbors, the absence of all military naval provision for attack and defense, and the abolition of oaths. That's a commonwealth, right? And we are the commonwealth of Pennsylvania. There's only a couple of states that are. And the idea there is very much like the moralistic society. It's a common wheel. We work together. But somewhere along the way, we went awry. And we ended up with this kind of individualistic political system, right? So if you take a look at it, I would love to know whether anybody here identifies themselves as a Pennsylvanian first when somebody asks you where you're from. I say I'm from Philadelphia. People say they're from Pittsburgh. You say you're from Central PA. You say you're from your whole country. Nobody says I'm from Pennsylvania in much the way that people from other states identify, right? People from Texas don't say I'm from Dallas. They say I'm from Texas, right? Um, so. One of our things is we have a strong tradition of localism in Pennsylvania. And that localism then helps politicians basically to say, we don't have a common system of good in Pennsylvania. What I want to get out of the system is what's best for my region, for my district. And as a consequence of that, what we see is that individualistic culture is kind of that marketplace. What can I get out for my people? All right, so that's a big deal. Um, second thing is that, you know, basically, um, our, our system is very political as far as partisanship is concerned, particularly in the state legislature. And um, as a consequence of that, you have really rough and tumble politics that, that comes down to, to partisanship, which is really a big part of the individualistic culture. And finally, um, corruption is oftentimes rampant in individualistic, individualistic political cultures, right? So if you think about it, um, if you're trying to get whatever you can out of the system, what you're going to end up doing is not being concerned about what's good for everybody. And uh, 
you know, Brad Bumstead, who's a, a, a well-known journalist here in Pennsylvania, has written two books on, on corruption. The last one, you know, he, he can't quite get out the new edition before it's outdated, right? <laughs> That's part of our system here in Pennsylvania. And, and a great quote from him is, you know, politicians begin as caring, conscientious lawmakers who are eventually corrupted by the system. Right? And that's part of our political culture here. So when we take a look at Pennsylvania politics, it's, it's interesting to take a look at it from this vein of political culture. And I think that informs much of what we, we talk about throughout the book. Okay. Um, so one of the issues that is in this volume is property taxes. Uh, most people hate them. <laughs> um, and there's a back and forth between Senator Argyle David Argyle and the executive director of the Senate Policy Committee with whom he works, John Hopcraft, and then there's a retort that the property tax is really the best tax to fund schools by um, an economist, William Fischel. So to give you the, the, the general argument that Argyle and Hopcraft use, it's basically that people hate the property tax. It's archaic. It's unfair. Um, you continue to pay it your house is always hostage to a school district for the rest of your life. You never really achieve the American dream because you're constantly paying and paying. You never own a piece of land or a piece of property. Um, and if you're paying attention to politics in the state at all, I'm sure you are if you're here, <laughs> uh, you know that Wolf came into office. He wanted to provide property tax relief, eliminate property taxes. It's been a big issue amongst Republicans for a long time. So this is something that's very timely. Um, but William Fishel, on the other hand, argues that actually it's the best tax for schools because by taxing property, you get people who don't have children in the school system to back the schools. So they see the value of the school system in their house value itself. So if you, you need to raise taxes or if you'd have to take a vote to raise taxes for a, a school, you polled everybody in the community, you probably, if people are genuinely self-interested, you'd probably not get people to back that tax if they don't have kids in the school. But a way of valuing education in another way, at least economically, is by putting the, the value of the school in the house itself. Now, what doesn't get explored in this volume is the fact that if you do eliminate property taxes, who's going to end up paying for schools? The plans recently have been that you raise the income tax to, I think it's 4.95% from the 3.07. Mm -hmm. Throw some numbers out there. Um, and you raise the in, uh, sales tax from 6% to 7%. Now, if you live in Philadelphia County, like I do, <laughs> you already pay an 8% sales tax. So I think, oh, okay, well, I'll pay even more sales tax. Um, or if you live in Alle Allegheny County, you pay a 7% sales tax there. So if you look at some of the studies by the independent fiscal office, which is a nonpartisan office that does research for the General Assembly, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. What they show is that somehow the state would have to come up with $15 billion. So you think all these people paying property taxes right now would have to make up for that in income taxes and sales taxes. And if you look at how it breaks down, you have to think about the fact that if you're a wealthy homeowner, getting all of your property taxes forgiven lets you off the hook to a pretty large degree, uh, to be honest. Um, and then if you are a renter, you probably won't get any kind of discount on your rent because the property tax is already in that 
amount that you're paying. Um, so, uh, like I said, it's not it's not in the book exactly, but it does get it is on the Appendant Fiscal Office website for research. There's also the complication of the fact that Pennsylvania has one, if not the most, or inequitable systems of funding public education, meaning that the students who need the most money get the least. And uh, that's not a, a partisan position, that's pretty much a statement of fact. Um, for example, some students only get, some school districts can only supply $9,000 a year for, per child or per student. Other school districts provide 26,000. So you have the example of the Lower Marion School District S would still have to fund their $23,000, $25,000 a year per student funding with all of the taxes from the rest of the state. And there's also this system called Hold Harmless in Pennsylvania, and if you're not familiar with that, it means that all of the school districts get the same amount of money year over year. This has been the case since the early 1990s. Now there has been a new education funding formula passed, but it's only the new money going into the system with that new formula that gets distributed. So all of those inequities have been baked in by not counting students from the early 1990s to the present day uh, would still exist. So you would have people in like um, Clarion County paying for the students from very wealthy families in Montgomery County. Uh, I don't know how you would solve that problem. <laughs> Um, but that's for you to think about. And, and, and it really, one of the big problems with property taxes is, is older people paying property taxes, particularly when they're retired. And that brings us to really kind of one of the, the other interesting articles in here by McClure and Krekanova, where they study demographic changes in Pennsylvania. And what that means for kind of balancing off kind of a, a older people versus younger people in society. And let me just give you a couple, I don't want to drop too many stats because that gets boring, um, but let me just drop a couple of things here because this is really astounding. So um, in 2001, 15.5% uh, of, of Pennsylvanians were 65 or older. By 2040, that will be 23.1%. And the amount of people 85 years of age and older is going to continue to go up to, to, to historical rates. In Pennsylvania, we tend to have an older population. So uh, in 2015, uh, the amount of people 85 years in age and older was 34% higher than the national average, one-third higher than the national average. And our problem is that we're not replacing the older people. So we're actually having a, a, a younger, not enough younger cohorts to be able to pay for the services that older people get. So Again, the national average, under five years of age, we're 10% below the national average. So that, that creates a problem. The other problem that we see is that going forward um, is that um, something called a dependency ratio, which is the people that depend on government for certain services, particularly welfare services, is going to go up as well, uh, particularly among older people. Um, and one of the problems is that what we're seeing with younger children as well is that more and more dependent on government services. So about 40% of children in Pennsylvania are also receiving some sort of services from the, the Pennsylvania government at the same time we're paying for the older people. So the question is, what does this all mean? Well, essentially, here's the problem, right? As people get older, they need more services. And one of two things happen when you retire. One is, um, while Medicare is the national service, many people that are older also receive Medicaid, 
uh, particularly poorer people, to help fund their health care and long-term care and so forth. And that's paid for kind of in a partnership between the states and the federal government. And for most states around the country, Medicare is the largest sources of expenditure, big, more than K through 12 education. It's a lot of money that's being paid out there. Um, so what we see is that older people need more services, and once you retire, particularly if you are a government employee, you're also paying into the pension system, which is also uh, you know, a significant burden uh, on either state or local governments. Um, the second thing is in Pennsylvania, uh, we don't tax retirement income. So uh, older people will still continue to pay the, uh, pay the, um, pay the, property. the property tax. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Um, but we don't tax things like 401k or pension plans. Um, so basically, we're not redistributing that income from older people back into the, the, into the system. And then finally, one of the problems is that uh, when older people retire, particularly people that are in um, kind of high-skilled jobs that don't require a college education, those people are not being replaced in industry. So what we see is that that trajectory for people that didn't go to college in previous years, the ability to be able to work your way up into management isn't there. And as a consequence of that, we've kind of got this skills gap uh, for, for younger people that don't go to college, which creates a problem because they don't have the same income to be able to help support the older people that need the services. On top of that, uh, when older people go to sell their houses, millennials in particular uh, are putting off home buying because of things like student loan and other debts that they've got. Uh, more and more, and the question is, when baby boomers go to sell their houses, are they going to be able to cash out the equity or are property values gonna go down because there's nobody to buy their houses, right? So what we see then from, from McClure and Crekinover are some pretty serious issues here. Uh, one is that we really need to devote more money towards training people into jobs that are high-skilled, uh, particularly manufacturing-type jobs that will allow people at a trajectory to be able to get high-wage jobs later on. But the problem is that costs money, right? And that costs money as an investment early on. Here's the question, though. We have to balance that with paying for older people. And who votes? older people, right? Younger people don't vote at nearly the same rate as older people. So politicians oftentimes will look at the immediate payback, which is to support those people that vote for them right now and dedicate less money towards education, which will pay off in the long term, hopefully, in dealing with these problems. Um, the other thing also, we, we don't have, uh, we, we could deal with some more immigration. I know that's a hot issue in the United States, but we, we probably could bolster our population here in Pennsylvania through, through more uh, immigration. And, and as they mentioned, it also might not be such a bad idea to, re to tax some retirement income as well. Older people are doing better than they historically have in the United States. Um, and for most of poorer Americans who are retired, they rely on Social Security for about 80% of their income. Wealthier people have pensions or 401ks or 403bs. So we could tax those. We're one of the few states that doesn't. We could tax those without hurting poorer people. We just wouldn't tax Social Security. And that might help uh, you know, put more money back into the system, particularly to help, help us uh, chain uh, people in, in, in schools, which would be helpful. But that's a really big long-term demographic problem 
that's very difficult for politic, uh, politicians to handle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and just want to add to what you said. It's that just was it two years ago, Pennsylvania lost population. We seem to be growing back, but it, the de demography on this issue is really tough to pin down simply because the state is growing so slowly or is not growing at all. So you have to think about whether it is an attractive place to live as a young family where a lot of the benefits don't flow to young families. Instead, a lot of the government benefits flow to older Pennsylvania citizens. Personally, that's fine, right? <laughs> I don't have a problem with that, but you have to think about fostering the next generation of Pennsylvanians who, who want to stay here, the working people who pay the bulk of the taxes. Um, well, it, it, and, and we're political scientists, so we have a heart, but economists, <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, take a look at this and, and think it's an incentive to keep older people in Pennsylvania because we don't tax their, their retirement benefits, right? <laughs> so it's a disincentive for them to leave the state, right? That's the economic perspective. And it, right, well, in an ideal world, everyone would get everything they needed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, just going to change gears for a minute here and briefly tell you about uh, another chapter that's in the book, and it's about Wolf's, Governor Wolf's first year in office. Uh, it seems like so long ago now, but uh, I will dial it back <laughs> use a time machine. Um, so they talk about Governor Wolf in comparison to previous governors like uh, Ridge, Shap, Rendell, uh, and use your recent memory, it, Wolf really compares best to Governor Rendell. Um, yeah, he was a Democrat facing a General Assembly controlled by Republicans. He had a really, really tough first year. If you remember Governor Wolf's first year, he had to present his budget address without even having the previous budget done at all. So he, there he was in February talking about the next fiscal year, and he had no idea what the previous fiscal year uh, outcome was going to be, which is pretty much unprecedented since the Constitution of 1968. Um, but in that context, you look at some of the political science literature, and it's that if a governor comes into office and you don't have a rip-roaring economy, it makes passing the budget difficult if you have uh, a split of the or the House and Senate and the governor's office between party, it makes it even more difficult to pass legislation because you, you just have two people playing chicken saying who's going to give up first because it's a test of each other's mettle to say who's going to actually set the agenda coming down the road. And then you also had him looking for tax increases and that's never popular no matter who's in office. People don't want their taxes increased so he was asking for a tax increase. He, he was dealing with divided government and the economy was just kind of chugging along under Corbett. So uh, in that context, maybe his first year wasn't so terrible. They also discuss, the authors discuss how um, he was also, I don't know, let's say burdened. <laughs> um, his staff didn't get along very well with the General Assembly. They were still in campaign mode and not in governing mode. So one of the things a governor has to do, uh, Rendell learned the same lesson when they come into office, is they have to learn that they, they have to make deals, they have to deal with people of the, the opposite party, you have to respect their points of view and their opinions. You can't constantly degrade them in the media. You can't send out messages to their constituents saying how bad they are because that's, that's politics that's just a little too dirty even for Pennsylvania. Um, so I think 
they can well they conclude that uh, Wolf learned from these lessons. He changed his staff. He stopped being so combative with the members of the General Assembly from the Republican side. And if you were paying attention this year, the budget passed on time. It was relatively easy. The leaders hashed it out. Then everybody went into campaign mode. And in Rendell's in, uh, first first term, the actually every year for me. Every <laughs> every year, he never passed a budget on time. So maybe Wolf isn't so bad after all. The the last thing you know, dealing with with Governor Wolf, I think, is that um, we've seen in the literature and political science is basically that state politics, particularly governors' races, are becoming much more nationalized. And that is that while if you're really attentive and watching what's going on between Governor Wolf and Senator Wagner. You know, you, you kind of see the gaffes from week to week on both sides and what they're kind of going after each other on. But the reality is that most people aren't following that. And most people attach their national partisan persuasion to what goes on in governor's races and vote more of what they know about Democrats and Republicans on the national level than they do at uh, the individual state level. And, you know, I think going forward that causes some problems particularly because of the fact that unlike the federal government you can't run a deficit at the state level right i mean there's ways to kind of get around certain things but you know you either have to raise taxes or cut services or some combination of both unlike the federal government which can run a trillion dollar deficit in times of economic crisis can't do that in pennsylvania right so nationalizing state politics i think is a real problem and you know i would say Somewhere around, it, it's hard to quite tell, but you know, you had a governor like Tom Ridge, who was a Republican, who was pro-choice. Bob Casey Sr., which was a Democrat that was pro-life, uh, and that's only you know 20 years ago, less than 20 years ago, right? You could never pull that kind of stuff off. I know Bob Casey Jr. is still pro-life, but you you probably couldn't pull that off today because our state politics are much more nationalized now. You saw it with Governor Corbett. He ran on the No New Taxes Pledge, which was a Grover Norquist type thing, which is a national issue. Um, and that, you know, probably in some respects may have cost him re-election. And I think what you're seeing here is that, that a lot of the issues that affect national politics are affecting us in Pennsylvania, particularly taxation on one side or the other. And I think this nationalization and the partisanship are, are a real problem going forward and don't really see a way out of that. But, um, you know, that kind of throws us into questions as well. If you want to talk about the, uh, the elections or um, be open for any questions that you might have. Yeah, we're going to toss it over to audience Q&A. So if you have a question, just simply raise your hand and we want to get it picked up on the sound system. So any questions out there? I was wondering what you thought about the amount of municipalities we have in Pennsylvania um, and how that's a strain on our resources. I know we have like hundreds of local municipalities and like the 67 counties. Sure. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I believe we have something like 2,600 odd municipalities in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Right. We, well, 500, 500 school districts, and, and then I think another 2,500 special purpose governments. Is that? Yeah. I actually did a study about this a while ago. Um, right. There's there's obviously an argument to to consolidation because of the overlap of administrative costs and that sort of thing. Um, 
strangely, you, you seem to save money the most with the ones in the middle, so the ones that, that aren't too small and ones that aren't too big. You want to combine the people in the middle. Um, you want to incentivize shared services and that sort of thing. It certainly makes any kind of planning policy difficult. I have a background in, in city and regional planning, too. And when you think about all the overlapping authorities that go along with that, and then the overlapping of the municipal or the um, the MSAs, the, the metropolitan statistical areas, I mean, it's just uh, it's out of control. <laughs> just I don't know how else to put it. Right. Wes, you can go. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it goes back a little bit to what I mentioned about localism in Pennsylvania, right? We are very attracted to our identity as being from a certain area. And so I, I did some research on school consolidation. And you know, particularly people's tradition of, of identifying with their school or their high school or the football team and where they went is very important to their personal identities in Pennsylvania. And so what we get down to then is it becomes very difficult to say to some area, you're really inefficient. We need to merge you with the people next to you when all your life they've been your rival high school or your rival school district and now you've got to be part of them, right? So it's identity on one hand. The second of all is don't discount the fact that these provide jobs for people, particularly in rural areas, that if you're going to consolidate those things, people are going to lose pretty decent paying jobs. So it, it's, it's a combination of that and then when you look at school districts as well as some governments, um, neighboring school districts that are wealthy don't want to consolidate with school districts that are poor next to them because then their educational system gets, in their opinion, kind of watered down by a bad school system. So, And their property values might go down. Right. Um, so that it's a great question, but, you know, we there's no answer for it because nobody's got the political will to force people to consolidate, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that there, there, there have been, New Jersey also has thousands upon thousands of municipalities and more school, school districts than we even have for such a small state. Um, and so they've put it, they've had, had incentives in place for municipalities to consolidate, but very few have taken them up on it. I know that, uh, was it Princeton Township and Princeton Borough recently, or maybe, maybe four or five years ago, everything seems recent to me now, <laughs> probably five or six years ago, uh, consolidated. Um, and I think there might have been one other two instances, but even with incentives in place for, for the, you know, the state government taking up part of the cost of the, the price of merging the administrations of the two communities, it's just what Wes says, it all comes down to, to who you are. In fact, in Pennsylvania, we used to have even more school districts because it was at the local level, not even at the school district level. And the 500 we have today is a result of a lot of consolidation, so. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, the Auditor General, uh, Eugene Pasquale, has come out very for the legalization of marijuana to help alleviate some of the pressures of the school taxes and Colorado recently has had over $500 million in, in sales and tens of millions of dollars in uh, revenue to the government in order to pay for those schools. How do you feel about that kind of policy getting enacted in Pennsylvania? Well, this is the beauty of federalism, right? Uh, I think, you know, 
if I remember correctly, California, I think, was the first state to legalize medicinal marijuana. And gradually, we kind of saw that that didn't create a bunch of, you know, a, a society that was in disarray. <laughs> and then some According states, what's that? According to you. Yeah. And well, then, <laughs> then a number of states, you know, Colorado and and uh, and Alaska and a couple other states legalizes recreational marijuana. And again, it's a social experiment, allowing states to be able to do that. Now we've just, uh, you know. Medicinal marijuana has just become legal in Pennsylvania, and we had something that kind of fit our politics, which we are a relatively conservative state when it comes to things like this. And you know, we found different ways to provide medicinal marijuana that were acceptable, particularly to conservative Republicans in the state, who who came around to this idea after seeing how you know basically um, you know children's health issues, things like this. It's a long way of saying, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon that we will have recreational marijuana in Pennsylvania. But the way federalism works is this kind of diffusion over time where we moved from saying medicinal marijuana was going to be something really bad, you know, back in the 90s, and now we have medicinal marijuana in Pennsylvania. Over time, those attitudes may change, and it all depends how you frame these issues. You, you mentioned tax revenue. That's a great way, right? We did that with gambling, right? That was, you know, it's a, it's a great way to be able to raise revenue without raising unpopular income taxes, sales taxes, and stuff like that. But I think the probably not something we would see on the horizon here in Pennsylvania in the near term. Yeah, I agree with that. Any other questions? Yes. The recent grand jury recommended two or three things to the legislature, but the one that uh, uh, is the most controversial probably is the statute of limitations and opening up a two-year window for uh, victims uh, whose statute has expired because of their age or because of the tough time. Uh, do you see any change as a result of this report that just came out last week uh, in the possibility of that passing? And and. And, and, and I note that the, uh, the Catholic Conference has not commented yet. Uh, now, the, the, the leading bishops in all the districts have been pushing lobbyists in to fight that for years. Uh, do they dare do that now that this report has come out? And I'm wondering uh, what's your comments on what do you think the possibility of that passing this year is? I, I, I was on yeah. vacation in Yellowstone <laughs> for the last two weeks, so I, I, I claim ignorance on the specifics of that report, so I'll pass that over to Michelle. Uh, not my purview either. <laughs> uh, however, I, I would say that, like anything in politics, if politicians hear enough complaints from their constituents, they, they will act on it, because that's what they're there for. Um, whether it will get through, I, you know, I would have, I, I'm not, a prognosticator, I, w I wouldn't want to say that, but certainly outrage at the local level to directly to politicians has made changes in Pennsylvania before. People have lost elections because of certain votes they've taken. If you look back at the legislative pay raise scandal back in, what was that, 2005? So certainly things can be done about it, but whether it will actually happen, I, yeah. So my question has to do with uh, actually the gambling component that was implemented years ago. Um, are you aware of what they said 
the um, revenues would be and what they actually ended up being? Well, I think one of the problems is um, that we've seen, that's one of those areas of diffusion where we've seen more and more states adopt gambling. So there was a lot of kind of rosiness about the forecast of what might happen. And over time, um, because certain areas of the country have adopted more competition, so we've got competition in every state around us when it comes to casinos, um, we don't get as much. And then what happens ultimately is that we decided to expand a little bit more into different areas. So, um, you know, we went kind of from slots to table games, and now we're looking at uh, sports betting. Um, many and casinos. And many casinos. In the last budget cycle. Right. Uh, and, and then kind of internet gambling as well. So um, these are all kind of like these, the rationale always is, well, people are going to bet, so why don't we legalize it take the criminal element out of it, and then tax it and use that money for good purposes. And, uh, but then you get addicted to that money, and once the money kind of slows up, then all of a sudden you've got to keep expanding this, or else you've got to take, you know, raise the sales tax or uh, raise the uh, income tax or something like that. So competition's a big deal. Vice taxes, too, are always popular with politicians. It's a very because it's a very small segment of the population, and you know the, that sort of behavior is already frowned upon to some degree. You know whether you're gambling or a smoker or a drinker, no one's going to cry too many tears over you if you pay a lot of taxes because you're drinking a lot. <laughs> but if you're paying a tax on a house and you're on a fixed income, those people will will feel something for those individuals. So it's especially popular in, in Pennsylvania to always go towards vice taxes or sin taxes as they're sometimes called. We have time for just one more question over here. I'm sorry to backtrack a little bit and I didn't hear the full context of the question that made you talk about school mergers. I wanted to ask a question and then you talked about marijuana and fr how you frame the legalization and how it might change culture mindset later on. And I, I heard what you were saying about individualistic societies and you have this identity in your school district and you don't want to merge with another school di district. And then you stated that the um, some richer school districts don't want to merge with poorer school districts and then you might lose jobs. What about all the kids in the poor districts? That's a lot higher quantity of people. It's generations of people for years to come in this state. So for the good of the state, for the good of more people than those that may lose their jobs, is there a way that you could frame that that might change culture's mind to merge with schools? I, I think that's a, <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, I, I think one way that you could frame that would be to say, look, this is an investment. Uh, if, if we don't want to pay, uh, like, education is what we would call a valence issue in political science, meaning that nobody's going to say that they're against education. It's like nobody says I'm for pollution, right? But with education, it, it comes down to the fact of like how do you frame that issue? You know, we see it kind of going on right now, you know, with with Senator Wagner kind of saying, you know, we got enough money for education, I'll put some more money into it, but you know, one of the big problems is the employee unions, right? That's a different way to frame issues. And I think the way that you could frame it is going forward if we want a smaller government that provides less kind of social services, then we've got to create a system of education that provides equal access to good education for everyone, 
so that those poorer people don't need services in the future. And I think, you know, that might be one way is, you know, I, this has somewhat been co-opted by the Democratic Party, but I think it would work for Republicans, is that this is an investment. And, and, and then it's always, that's always been the way people have talked about education is that, you know, in a free society in which we value equality or at least equality of opportunity, everybody's got to have a leg up. And we don't have an equal society if I live two miles away from you, but by virtue of where I go to school, I've got a good, you know, I, I've got a good chance to go to college whereby you have almost none. So I think that might be one way to frame it if that answers the question. Can we give it a round of applause? Oh, one more question. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Um, so, do you see that working like with healthcare as well? I mean, we got so many of these other areas that are underserved um, communities. We can't get physicians, dentists into some of these remote rural settings, but if we were able to somehow help to merge, give these underserved schools opportunity for education, then perhaps they would stay within their communities to serve those communities mm -hmm. um, for healthcare as well. Do you see that as happening? I'm a dreamer. You, you wrote the piece on the rural healthcare. What? You wrote the piece on the rural healthcare. Oh, <laughs> but I don't agree with that. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm slightly reluctant to give my actual political opinions here because I work at a bipartisan think tank and I'm supposed to refrain from any kind of policy position taking. Wes can be free with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, th there is an article in, in here um, about you know Medicaid expansion and particularly for rural areas, the difficulty in being able to provide the services that people need. And this is a problem all around the country, right? Uh, particularly with, with access, not just the fact that people can't afford medical, in, in this case, medical services, but they just don't have access to adequate health care, meaning that there just isn't a doctor there for that purpose. And, um, you know, I, that's, we have a shortage of doctors in this country. It's gonna be very difficult to address those problems. And, I unfortunately don't really have an, an issue. It, it's not that people don't care about it, it's just there aren't enough doctors, right, to provide these kind of healthcare services. So I think that's the real big problem there. Can we give a round of applause for Wes and Michelle? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming, everyone. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, books are available for purchase up at the cafe counter. I think Wes and Michelle are available to stick around if you guys wanna get your book signed. Um, and thanks again for coming. Have a great night.